we begin thanking and praising Almighty God, Allah, who is alone without partner in his being, in his attributes, and his acts. We bear witness that Muhammad, the son of Abdullah, may Allah bless him and grant him peace, everlastingly is his slave servant, his devotee, and his last messenger to all human beings. The black of them, the brown of them, the white of them, and all the beautiful shades, all the beautiful complexions in between. We ask Allah Ta'ala to forgive us of our sins, of our wrongs, and to protect us from the consequences of our misdeeds. Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta'ala has said <clears throat> in His glorious scripture, which falsehood cannot approach from before it or after it. O oh, you who have believed, be reverent of God and speak truthfully, speak accurately. If you do this, Allah will rectify your deeds because our deeds, no matter how proper we attempt to fulfill the commandments, no matter how in harmony with the laws that Allah has given us, we attempt to be, no matter how much prayer or fasting or charity we give, the nature of the son and daughter of Adam and Eve, peace be upon them, is that there's always deficiency, always some lack. And this deficiency sometimes is internal due to our state when performing a particular deed. And sometimes the deficiency is external and sometimes it's both. And so we're always in need in asking Allah Ta'ala to rectify our actions, our sincerity, as well as our outward execution. And Allah will forgive you your sins. And whoever obeys Allah and His Messenger, because this really defines ultimately who a Muslim is. It's a person's eagerness to obey Allah and His Messenger, and a person striving each day, not aiming for perfection, because we, as Rasulullah said, Kullu Bani Adam khata'un wa khayru khata'in that all of the children of Adam make mistakes, commit sins. They err, and there's a spectrum of what those misdeeds may be. But the best of those, the best of those who do err are those who turn to Allah. And Allah loves those who turn to Him. Walhamdulillah, we thank Allah Ta'ala for this blessed month of Muharram. We are at the end of Muharram, the final days of Muharram, one of the four sacred months. 
And it is the month that begins the new calendar, the new Hijri calendar, which Muslims have been using for over a thousand years. And our scholars of sacred time, the Muwakkitun, they fine-tuned our calendar so well that there was only a leap year every 2,500 years, something like this. It only needed to be corrected every 2,500 years, which mathematically is, in, is an accomplishment. Time and space really color and define our experience of the world. And although Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, although God exalted and transcendent is He, is absolutely beyond time and space, independent of time and space, it is through time and space that we approach Him. It is through time. We're here on Jumu'ah, the sixth day of the week. It's time. We're here after the zawal of the sun, after the declining of the sun from its zenith in the sky, time. We are here in the masjid gathered together as brothers and sisters, as a community, space. We approach the one who is beyond time and space through time and space until the heart is illuminated and its consciousness transcends time and space. Today I wanted to share a few reflections on a defining moment in time and space. The second migration, the second hijrah of the Prophet Muhammad wasallam's companions. The last time I spoke in this blessed space, I had mentioned something from the story of Khawla bint Hakim and Uthman ibn Mad'un, may Allah be pleased with them. Uthman ibn Mad'un, who should not be confused with Uthman ibn Affan or Uthman ibn Talha, may Allah be pleased with them all, was, a, was an elderly man who led the first migration, the first hijrah to where? To Ethiopia, to the, to Habasha, which again should not be confused with the country of Ethiopia today, because that space was far more vast than the country of Ethiopia today. As Imam An-Nawawi, may Allah be pleased with him, mentions in his Kitab, Tahdib al-Asma' wal-Lughat, the instruction, the correction, the refinement regarding names and languages. He says, Al-Habasha, Abyssinia, Ethiopia, or Greater Ethiopia, if you will, it is the vastest of all lands. It is the most vast of all of the lands and its population is the greatest of all populations in number. Imam Manawi says this. 
and others, other scholars of tarikh also mention the same thing. And so in the imagination of the Muslims, Al-Habasha, particularly at the time of Imam Manawi, and I would even submit before him, Habasha was not just, not only the horn of Africa. Anyway, there were two migrations to Ethiopia, weren't they? Before the blessed Hijrah to Medina Munawwara that Rasulullah himself participated in. The two that were made to Ethiopia, he himself did not go, but he sent his companions to Ethiopia. Why did he send them to Ethiopia? It's mentioned in a sound narration that Rasulullah said, it is a land of truth and in it is a king who never oppresses anyone. A land of Siddiq, a land of transparency, a land of honesty, a land, as one of my teachers told me, who's an American, he's not from Africa, he said, Africa is a place where you can't wear a mask. The people don't wear masks. There's, there's some degree of siddiqiyya there that you cannot avoid. It's dust settles on everything. And as it was for many of the prophets and messengers, for Prophet Musa salam, and Prophet Ibrahim salam, for Moses and Abraham and, and Joseph and Jacob, peace be upon them all, and so many other prophets, Africa was a place of refuge, of protection. And thus it was for the companions of Rasulullah And so Uthman led this first migration, but the cousin of Rasulullah Sayyiduna Ja'far ibn Abi Talib radiallahu anhu, At-Tayyar, the one who flies, the flyer, the one who possessed two wings, he led this second hijrah. And many of you, if not all of us, know from the life, the blessed seerah of the Prophet when he was in the presence of a Najashi, in the early days of the Prophet's mission, Ajafar gave a soul-stirring sermon that the safety of these 80-something, 90-something, almost 100 new Muslims depended upon. Now, one of the distinctions between Uthman and Jafar was that Uthman was older, whereas Jafar was very young. And again, this is from the wisdom of the Prophet Age was not the determining factor in who was qualified to lead. How old was Jafar? In his 20s? And he made that hijrah with our, the blessed lady Asma, Asma bint Umais, may Allah be pleased with her, who later on, Sayyiduna Umar, Umar ibn al-Khattab, Allah be pleased with him, he called her Habashia, you Ethiopian woman, even though she was a Qurashi. Why did he call her Ethiopian? Because she spent 14 years, 14, one four, 
14 years in Ethiopia with Jafar ibn Abi Talib and some of the other companions. Families went to Ethiopia. There were Sahaba that were born in Ethiopia. And this, my dear brothers and sisters, is a part of the seerah of the Prophet that begs our attention. Many times the, the seerah of the Prophet is divided into the Meccan phase and the Medinan phase. Are you familiar with this? Meccan phase, Medinan phase. But what's often forgotten is that a sub-phase within the Meccan phase was this Ethiopian experience where the Muslims were not a persecuted minority as they were in Mecca nor were they a minority, growing minority, later becoming a substantial population, faith population in Arabia and in the region as a whole that had political authority that had some autonomy but in Ethiopia it was neither this nor that they were, they were a minority that was protected that had the freedom to worship without fear of any harm and I think that experience is more similar to what we experience here in the United Kingdom, isn't it? We're not persecuted, we're not being stabbed and dragged, you know, dragged through the streets of, of Cambridge because of our belief. Nor do we have the authority to establish what the Prophet ﷺ established in Medina. We're in this liminal space. And I think we can learn more about how we can best respond to this modern, postmodern time we're in. This modern, postmodern space that we are in if we look more closely at the experience of the companions in Abyssinia. وَأَقُولُ قَوْلِ هَذَا وَاسْتَغْفِرُوا لِوَلَكُمْ وَلِسَالِ مُسْلِمِينَ وَاسْتَغْفِرُوا إِنَّ اللَّهَ غَفُورٌ رَحِيمٌ I've made my statement. I seek forgiveness for myself and all of those who lovingly surrender to God. Seek forgiveness of God. He forgives all sins. When we look at the famous khutbah of Sayyiduna Ja'far al-Tayyar, who later, it's really amazing that, you know, this young man who was a cousin of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, and not only that, he and his wife Asma were both early members of the community. After about five years or so, they leave the messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam's community in Mecca, they go to build a new community in Ethiopia. How long was he as a Muslim in the presence of the Prophet And then after 14 years, when they return to Medina, at the summons of our beloved Rasulullah 
right? And now they become Ethiopian. Tahabashu, right? They, they became Ethiopian to the point where Sayyidina Umar, you know, he says this to Asma, oh Ethiopian woman, and she says, yes. She didn't deny it, by the way. She said, naam, yes. And then he says, you were not here when we made Hijrah to, to Medina. So there's a fadl, there's, a, there's something that we have that you don't have. And she said, we were, we fled with our religion to save our lives. We, we carried, and, but you had Rasulullah with you to carry your burdens. And she went, not very happy with what Umar, Sayyidina Umar said to the Messenger to share her feelings. Many lessons here. Sometimes we think that sharing emotions and sharing feelings is un-Islamic. She shared her emotions with the Prophet And there are many episodes like this all throughout the seerah. Our mental health depends on the ability to share our emotions in a way that is healthy and hopefully channeled towards the betterment of ourselves, our families, and the community. And the Messenger of Allah told her, on the contrary, you have two rewards. You made the Hijrah to Abyssinia, to Ethiopia, and then now you've made the Hijrah to Medina. The Prophet affirmed her. And this is something that's extremely important for leaders to do. Whether you're a leader in your home, a leader at your business, a leader of a mosque, a leader of a city or a country. But when they returned after 14 years in Medina, the Messenger of Allah he was at the siege of Khaybar, the fortress of Khaybar. And when he saw Sayyiduna Ja'far, he said, I don't know which brings me more happiness, the return of Ja'far or the victory of Khaybar. And Ja'far, when he heard this, there's a narration that he did a dance. Dance? He danced on one foot, he jumped around on one foot, and Rasulullah what do you think he said? What do you think he said when he saw Ja'far doing this dance? He asked him, Ja'far, what is this? And he said, this is how they show happiness in Ethiopia. And the Prophet smiled. But not long after that, he gets sent to where? Mu'ta. A few years in the presence of the Prophet On another occasion, the Prophet brought Ja'far happiness when he said to him, of all people, you are the one who resembles me most in your physical appearance and in your character. Ja'far. He did not have the blessing of spending the kind of time that the likes of Sayyidina Abu Bakr Siddiq and Sayyidina Umar and Sayyidina Uthman and, and others spent with the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. But still, he resembled. 
the Messenger outwardly and inwardly. In conclusion, dear brothers and sisters, the speech of Jaffa to Najashi, and I do hope you all take the time to look at it. That's, that's our homework, inshallah. That's our homework to look at this speech. We really can't do justice to it in a 20, 30 minute khutbah. We need a few hours, maybe. There's so many lessons, but in it he outlines how this new Muslim community was transformed from a community of lawlessness where people were killing each other, people were burying daughters, people were eating carry-on. The strong were exploiting the weak. Does that sound familiar? Does any of this sound familiar? And we can open up the national newspapers and we'll see episodes that really resemble this state of lawlessness. Jahiliya is more than ignorance. Yes, it is, it is ignorance, but it is ignorance that manifests in there being no holds barred in society. And they transformed and they transitioned from lawlessness, the lawlessness of Jahiliya, to the light of Risala, to the light of the message and messengerhood of Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And this really is what should define our sojourn here in this world and in any land that we're in. When we look at the speech of Ja'far, we see that the Messenger of Allah was not only teaching a religion, a way of life that was focused only on personal piety and personal salvation, but that the Prophet was actively transforming, actively healing, healing, the ills of society. And so I'll say this as we prepare for the salah. The responsibility of the Muslim community beyond and in addition to our building masajid, mosques and schools and charities, charitable organizations is to look at what's ailing the society at the grassroots level. And I don't know about England that much, but I know in the United States, particularly we have young people who are starving for guidance, starving for a sense of belonging, starving for mentorship, starving for empowerment and the more that we as a community gather around these young people the more we'll see that they'll be in our masajid and they will help just like Jafar ibn Abi Talib did in bringing our societies from lawlessness to light.